0: Just go to Indeed.com/slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com/slash Bluewire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, Rotoviz Radio Listener. This is Curtis Patrick from the Dynasty Command Center Podcast. And I've got a special deal for you today. Go to Rotoviz.com. downfield touchdown Patrick Mahomes with a rope this one and touchdown this time going deep for
1: Beckham Junior he, he did hello everyone welcome back to Road of His Overtime on Road of His Radio my name's Colin Kelly you can follow me on Twitter at Overtime Ireland joined as always by Sean Siegel the co-host here off the podcast great to do multiple shows a week three shows a week in fact over the last couple of weeks here on Road of His Overtime always at least two shows uh, throughout the last almost 12 months as we have soared past 200 episodes here off the podcast and today on this edition I'm delighted that we're going to be joined by John Daigle who you can follow on Twitter at NotJDaigle of NBC Sports Edge. Really looking forward to talking to John in a few moments. He did join me for the NFL Draft series that we did with Travis May just prior to the NFL Draft. We're going to get some of his thoughts today on what has maybe changed after the draft from some of those prospects and his thoughts on them. We're going to talk some best ball as well. John, a big uh, big fan of the best ball format as well. So it's going to be a fun one, Sean. Really looking forward to having John on here.
2: Yeah, he's going to be great. It- I have a draft, a rookie draft still with him uh, coming up in in the future. So kind of get his picks and and know how I need to maneuver around him. But no, I mean, he's great. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll cover some draft. We'll cover some dynasty. We'll cover some redraft with some best best ball. And yeah, we're really excited to have him on the show.
1: So delighted to be joined now on the show by John Daigle. John, uh, I had the fortune of having yourself and Travis May just prior to the NFL draft we talked a little bit about the draft the prospects we broke them down kind of position by position I I really enjoyed the the process of going through them obviously there were some players not that we were very excited to see where they would land and some of those landing spots have not been as kind to the prospects I guess we'll say Uh, some of the landing spots have been more kind Uh, what was some of the things that changed for you immediately from pre-draft to post-draft when some of those picks were made. Was there any players and specifically that went up or down your, your rankings?
3: We did try to warn everyone that day three can get a little ugly and messy there. And as everyone tuned out after the third round, it was obvious that that's what happened. Having said that, I was actually shocked. Maybe we shouldn't be moving forward. But in hindsight, the fact that a few of those names we didn't expect to be fourth round picks, let alone sixth or seventh round uh, those are the guys that were catered to in that range and all because they had speed, the Dwayne Eskridge, the Anthony Schwartz, Tutu Atwell. It didn't matter about their archetype profile, which they actually do not have at all, um, let alone the college production in some of those cases, but just the fact that they were fast. They ran fast fast. 40 time and straight line speed that was enough for coaches and GMs to covet them over other guys let's say like Terrace Marshall who still went in that range as well but we know from his archetype he is just a totally different caliber of receiver presumably so than someone like Eskridge let's say who's a smaller converted cornerback essentially who we don't know how he'll fare in the league at all or like Tutu Atwell like I mentioned earlier there is some confidence he can make himself a home in the Rams because I trust Sean McFay, but also a 149-pound receiver. We've literally never seen anything like that. So uh, just the fact that we should now start drafting prior to drafts rookies with fast 40 times. That sounds so dumb, I know, but if that's how they're going to treat those types of players, that's how we should treat those types of players in early dynasty and best ball drafts, as my dogs bark outside now. John, the last time that we were
2: on together, it wasn't a podcast. It was a draft. We were in Curtis's Black Crown. There were 12 people on the screen. We had a couple of minutes to make our picks. We're trying to make some trades. I think you were talking to me a couple of times, and and I'm talking to somebody else. And Afterward, I'm like, I think I had some trades I could have made with John if I just realized he was the person trying to communicate with me. Uh, Looking at these maybe some of the top guys now we both have picks in the top six of that draft uh Matthew Friedman I think has seven of the top 13 so you know we'll have to leave his favorites for him who should be people who should people be looking for in this top five we know who the you know the big names are in this group who's your guy that if you have the the two or the three in a super flex you're trying to really hammer over and over
3: I'm glad you closed the Superflex there because that's where we're leading towards. I, of course, share a team with Ian Harditz. And we are, uh, we need a quarterback to put it simple. We depended on Sam Donald and drew lock. And it turns out you should have not had dependent <laughs> on them, even though, even though I do actually have confidence in Sam Donald this year with the Panthers, probably more than I actually should. The fact is that's where we need to go to build our team. And so even though he's probably listening, I am assuming Friedman is going Trevor Lawrence, number one, overall, uh, It's funny because it seems like Lawrence's greatness has been overshadowed and lost in the mix of how much hype and discussion, justifiably so, Justin Fields and Trey Lance is warranted in this process. Like Lawrence is so good that we haven't even talked about him at all. So he does deserve to be number one. But I'm hoping Trey Lance is there at number two because I believe he barely edges out Justin Fields just in being in a better environment for his entire rookie deal, most likely, barring a drastic change and uh, beyond that as well. So if I can get the quarterback working with Kyle Shannon for, you know, a decade plus, why wouldn't I do that there in a super flex? So that's where I'm leaning. By one discrepancy still, even though the Julio J- Jones trade may knock this, I'm still unclear where to take Pitts since we know he is a drastic outlier. Just four rookie tight ends ever to eclipse 850 receiving yards. The last one, of course, being Mike Dicka at 1961 as the only player rookie tight end to go over a thousand receiving yards. Uh, last time we saw 850 plus, it was Jeremy Shockey in 2002. And by the way, if you don't want to use these comps, totally get it because Pitts is quote unquote a unicorn. But if you even go back to Calvin Johnson's rookie year, even he struggled with just 750 receiving yards. So It is a blanket statement. Perhaps that is wrong. Sean, like you're the master of this. So I would love to hear your thoughts. I just use the blanket statement of as a rookie tight end, it is very tough in any drafts, let alone Superflex, outside of tight end premium perhaps, to be, let's say, a top four, top five pick. And that's where I'm drawing the line with Pitts. But I could be wrong because he is, once again, a very special player.
2: You mentioned Darnold and Locke. I had... Haskins and Garoppolo and <laughs> yeah. Jordan Love, I think as the the three guys there, it was actually tricky that the rest, when you completely fade the QB position in a super flex, you do tend to have some pretty good players at other spots. And so even with zero quarterbacks down the stretch, I was really fighting to lose those last games so I could get up into the top six here and have a shot at some of these generational types of players. Is is there any thought for you and, and kind of going with your question of moving down from the two, even though you need that QB, because we, we have these at least two, if not three quarterbacks who are very interesting, Zach Wilson, also someone who could be taken in that sort of second half of the first round and maybe do a little bit of, of what you need. Even yeah. with our two teams needing QBs, if you have a generational prospect at tight end, you have a generational prospect at wide receiver, which most of our models suggest Chase is that, and then you have someone in ETN who I don't think is a generational prospect, but someone who could be the 101 in a lot of years. And he's not even the first running back going because Harrison is in such a good volume situation and could be good. I mean, he's, he's got some red flags that I think tend to get um, just overlooked or, or shuffled to the side because he's a pass catching running back who also breaks tackles is an athlete and is going to have huge volume. We've got some of these other guys. Does that move around for you at all? And, and, with Pitts, I think that if you're in a tight end premium, which again, like Superflex, almost everything is now, and you look at what Justin Jefferson did last year and say, again, as you pointed out, if Pitts is really a wide receiver who's going to have tight end eligibility and now playing as the second fiddle to Calvin Ridley in the dome with a decent quarterback, he's not going to have a Justin Jefferson season because that's just very unusual. But if he has a monster season really off the bat or even year two, year three, you're talking about someone who could be the one one Right? I mean, he could go that early. People object to it when I mentioned that if Travis Kelsey were 25, he would be in a battle with Patrick Mahomes to be the 101 in dynasty startups. And so if you look at Pitts and say he could be that kind of guy, then, then shouldn't we be taking him at the very top, even with sort of Lawrence, who probably isn't going to be Mahomes and probably isn't going to have the rushing value of a Kyler Murray or Lamar Jackson.
3: Okay. So like I posed three questions to you, let me answer your three questions (laughs) Uh, for Pitts, This does not include dynasty startups, but I will say for those listening for redraft value and antecedents here, the Falcons' schedule does not lend itself to being a favorable one. Not only did this lose Julio Jones, which isn't about the schedule, but they actually play nine road games this year because they lost a home game given the extra bump with an additional regular season game. But then look at their schedule, and they actually travel to London as a home game in week five. So they have 10 road games quietly this year, take an early bye and the longest season in NFL history, and then come back and have to wade the waters from that point forward with eight road games from that point on. So I worry about the Falcons as a whole. This is why I've been down knowing Julio Jones would get traded. We didn't know where he would go, but we knew he would be gone. That's why I've been down on a lot of long shot MVP Ryan odds I've seen because I genuinely think the schedule in a purgatory rebuild is what they put themselves in to where they cannot escape Ryan's contract this year. We knew that with 14 plus million in dead money, but next year they can. So it just seems like that's the road they're heading towards. And they're not truly all in this year because if they were, they would have restructured or made something happen for one last hurrah with Jones. So that's why I worry about pits in strictly in redraft formats for the dynasty. league We are discussing in heart. and I, zigged while everyone zagged no one was taking running backs and rightfully so it's a very very smart room we're in thus we took running backs just to try to separate ourselves so you mentioned stacking elite position at another elite position we have Eckler, Derrick Henry, Jonathan Taylor, uh Saquon Barkley the list goes on like we have six running backs we start every single week just because we built differently and we're confident in that but we lack at the other positions receiver and being included but as we know the receiver floor can actually be found much easier than expected especially in redraft where we're just going to be chasing volume weekly anyhow so there's that, but I still don't look at it this way for a super flex because the margin of scoring between quarterbacks one through five last year. And then you go to number six was so incredulously wide. The fact is like it used to be the late round format via JJ Zacharyson because you could get that rushing floor in the late rounds. But now particularly last year. So perhaps it was anomaly. But when you have Dak, Lamar, Kyler, the best quarterbacks, not only throwing the ball, but also running the ball, that creates boom weeks that the QB6, QB7 can't catch up to. And so to have that elite option in Trey Lance, who and his best case scenario comp is Michael Vick. Uh, That is something I think is very important for the top of Superflex, just in case it goes right. It could go wrong. But just in case it goes right, I want to be all in on the scenario that it's right. And I don't want to lose out on that. So that's why I would be on on him. And then actually Justin Fields over Jamar Chase, probably unpopular opinion, um, super flex, number two and three overall.
1: Yeah, that's pretty close. Uh, I my one downside and we talked about it on the draft show was, you know, what Fields was the landing spot. The dream scenario was where. We haven't ended up in the dream scenario. The dream scenario was the 49ers. That obviously didn't happen. But uh, I probably still would be very tempted to get Chase in there just ahead of him. But I uh, I thought that was a really good discussion in terms of where we were looking at. The more I look at it as well, the situation you laid out with the Falcons, I think it would have been a better decision for them to take Justin Fields this year than to kick the can down the road. But again, that's something for the Falcons to figure out, not for us to... The,
3: the dream scenario is for Justin Fields to start week one and not be comp to Patrick Mahomes in his rookie year. That's the dream scenario.
1: Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what happens there. There's to the fight past Andy Dalton first. Um, yeah. Uh, in terms of the, the rest of the rookies, we're talking there about the very high-end guys. Is there any of the... Maybe the guys that we were talking about on that draft series... A little bit higher up the draft process, where we thought these guys are going to go in those first two or three rounds, you maybe slipped a little bit. That you're still excited to see and draft for 2021.
3: It actually is Terrace Marshall. Uh, he had a first round grade going into that, going into the very last week when, as we know, they got all their medical flags later on their medical information and thus push guys down. Very last minute. That's why the last second mocks that came out the night before between Peter Schrager, Daniel Jeremiah, all those guys, had players just completely slip out of the first two days because now this new information had cropped up. And Terrace Marshall, I do believe, especially in this Mickey Mouse class where they're all good at like one thing, but they lack the size, speed. They lack something in their game. Terrace Marshall, assuming full health, does have it all. And he goes into a terrific situation where he's not only – Familiar with the playbook, working with Joe Brady, of course, in 2019. But more importantly, we know, just like last year, Brady trains his players to be receivers, not to be particular role receivers. So that's why DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, all played everywhere. And that's what Terrace Marshall will do. But he can do that because he's already shown he can do that. In 2019, he played 73% of his snaps from the boundary in that prolific offense with Justin Jefferson. And... The third one, Jamar Chase. And then, of course, 73% of his routes in 2020 from the slot. So he's shown he can do it all at LSU and will be asked to do such with only David Moore blocking him and 11 personnel from week one. So I think he can be uh, actually have redraft value from week one. Apologies to all the mothers of LSU receivers.
2: Speaking of, of redraft value from week one, is there one guy maybe outside of the t- first 10 rounds that you think you should have in all of your redraft leagues, say – you know, round 11 to round 15, someone you're loading up on everywhere.
3: It is Ron Moore for me. There isn't a better player to scheme fit exactly what the Cardinals need. Uh, Think to DeAndre Hopkins last year, arrives and he sees the league's second highest target share as their immediate intermediate possession receiver with an 8.9 average depth of target. And then Christian Kirk, who, by the way, we all know, we saw Christian Kirk at Texas A&M was not used like the Cardinals love using him, but he's simply a pop shot over the top guy. He didn't play like that at all with the Aggies. He was used strictly underneath more like Curtis Samuel, but in this league with Cliff Kingsbury, he has a 12 ADOT because that's how they view him. And so now you move Rondell Moore underneath and remember receivers carry their own depths of target. It's not judged by the quarterback. And so where Moore will earn targets is exactly where he earned targets throughout his entire collegiate career. 78% of his collegiate receptions came within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage, and 71% of his collegiate yardage came after the catch. He's going to have an opportunity to do that immediately immediately. From the slot, AJ Green, of course, Joe Burrow, when targeting him last year, averaged 4.4 yards per target, the lowest among the Bengals receivers for a reason, because we are not worried, at least for fantasy, about AJ Green's outlook This at this stage in his career, even though I would love to see one more prime year for him. So I just think it is the perfect scenario, both for volume and what more specializes in from week one.
1: So when we jump into basketball. I know our listeners are, are big basketball fans. I know you enjoy ball as well, John, uh, like myself and Sean. Is there any players specifically? And I guess we can tailor this, and if you want us to spring it to redraft as well. But is there any players, you know, two or three names that you're further away from than pretty much industry consensus, in a good way or a bad way? I guess we'll look at it.
3: I know we have the Godfather of Zero RB with us, so I actually yeah. want to. Toss this around with Sean because I think Aaron Jones is actually a terrific value. And I'll give you some late rounds in a bit, but. I believe Aaron Jones should be in the top tier along perhaps even shoved inside the top five, given other concerns of running backs we have like Alvin kambar's situation under center Saquon Barkley, perhaps being limited to start the year, Derek Henry, now not a pass catching back, but usage wise still in the same tier, even though there are worries there since he has 827 total touches the past two seasons as an outlier usage horse. Um, I think Aaron Jones, as a pass-catching running back, should be shoved in there. It logically just doesn't make sense that he would have less opportunity after Jamal Williams vacates 35 total targets and 14 routes per game. And A.J. Dillon has totaled 23 catches going all the way back to his freshman year at Boston College. He's just That's just not the type of player he is to come in on third down and suddenly be used in the passing game. So even if, if Aaron Jones does not have a goal line exclusive role that's fine because he didn't have that last year and it was just okay so I actually treat Aaron Jones in the back into the first round the turn at the second as essentially a top tier RB1 and I'm just curious Sean is that incorrect is that not doing zero RB properly
2: well one of the things that we talk about a lot is that you don't want to chase those running back points in the bottom half of the first round I think that wrapping back into the second round is a little bit of the the same thing now Aaron Jones, for me, was someone who I think that his talent level puts him up in those top guys. So we would a- agree completely on that. Our range of outcomes tool, which Dave Kavan uh, does all of the programming for, all, all of the coding for, ha- has built and is fantastic, is constantly pulling out values for people, uh, both because it actually gives a better sense of how players are going to score and then people do like the range of outcomes element, where you can see uh, a better well range i mean you can see what the likelihood is for these players to hit at different points it really pulled jones out last year and said you know why are people fading this guy who scored all of these touchdowns who has all of these high value touches who catches all of these passes that doesn't make sense right especially when we have plenty of reason to believe based on his explosiveness you know his on the field athleticism his tested athleticism this is one of the most talented guys in the league my question now would be is He overperformed, but are we now in the same situation? Obviously, the Aaron Jones stuff, the Aaron Rodgers stuff is at, at the front of everybody's mind. I do think that when we're looking at guys in the first round, we want them to be big time talents, which I think sometimes people forget when they're drafting someone like a Josh Jacobs at the end or a Kenyon Drake at the end. It's not that those guys aren't good football players. Someone who's a starting running back in the NFL is a good football player, a good athlete. But we want the people, you know, like a Christian McCaffrey, you know, like an Alvin Kamara, like a Dalvin Cook, who are really just so far above everybody else that you have this upside as well. I mean, it's not enough to say, okay, well, the floor is, is solid. And that's one of the things I think with Derrick Henry, where he can be criticized too much or pushed down too much based on the fact that he's not going to catch passes, because he is a fantastic talent and he does have that volume in the other areas that matter. But even with that, I mean, the reason he gets pushed down is because you're not going to have this season that just single-handedly blows everybody else away, except for maybe if you have a really soft schedule during the fantasy playoffs where then you're like, okay, well, even if it's not the full season, all you have to do is run through three bad defenses for 35 points a game at the end for everybody to come back and say, well, that was the obvious pick. With Jones, I don't know if we have either of those things because I I think that right now, the those concerns about the quality of the offense really do matter. And then... A.J. Dillon, right? We look at Derrick Henry, what he's doing. Dillon and Henry are really guys who are very, very similar. It's it's easy to forget the fact that Henry was almost out of the league, right? Because he came in and all of those concerns people had about his uh, lateral movement, about how the game he had in college would translate to the NFL. I mean, he struggled for a long time and people were starting to cut him from fantasy teams right about the time that he absolutely exploded and then moves back up to be a legitimate first round type of player. I know that there are a lot of people who don't think that Dylan is actually that level. There are some stylistic things. They think there are some scouting things that you can differentiate between the two players. But when you look at big guys who can break tackles and also break long runs and you look at some of the things that Dylan did down the stretch, I think that he takes a big chunk of maybe the low value touches and that's something where if you're going to have a a committee where someone's going to have the high value touches and someone's going to have the low value touches then you say okay well if i'm going to get a discount on the high value touch guy that's who i want but even at adp where now we're looking at a situation where we can say okay well jones is maybe falling below his talent but is he still now falling below his overall volume situation he's one of these guys where if because he was in a committee was going in the third, fourth, fifth round, then I'd start to be excited because like, this is, you know, they're high value touches. He's a big time talent. I don't know. I just have a very hard time taking any except for the very top running backs in really any format, but especially in redraft, I think that you have to take other positions as opposed to hitting on an Eckler or an Aaron Jones. One of the things I think is an interesting question to kind of throw back to you, Aaron Jones, a big time talent, but maybe some questions about how the offense will work Joe Mixon, maybe one of the weakest starting running backs in the NFL, but now in this amazing situation, potentially, how do you look at those two guys? And especially, and one of the things that we can do here and look and say, well, maybe we're wrong. And if I'm wrong and Aaron Jones isn't this huge gap ahead of Joe Mixon from a talent perspective, then they shouldn't be anywhere close to each other in terms of where they're going because Joe Mixon's situation now is is really just out of this world
3: see one calm he did the Sean thing where he disagreed with me in the nicest way possible, which I which I appreciate. I love I love the discourse with each other uh you are correct. I never actually considered though until you mentioned it Joe Mixon basically being cheaper arbitrage Aaron Jones uh because Mixon of course the terrific situation you mentioned did lead all running backs his position and touches those first six games. And now we get to a Bengals offense that we know in 10 games of Joe burrow, led the league in pass attempts and dropbacks per game. Also, if you read... Pat Thorman's piece that established the run on game scripts and offensive pace, the Bengals were actually the fastest team both in neutral game script and in terms of plays per game with Burrow under, under center moving to bottom two with any other signal caller besides him. So the volume is going to be there, which tells me that's all you need to know for Joe Mixon, especially after losing Gio Bernard, who, recall, in those first three weeks at least, was just annoying for all of us. Just a pesky guy who took away the upside that Mixon should have had in that first month of the season. So I do agree. I, I'm on both of those players. I love Mixon. I think the the line I draw is that I believe Aaron Jones, especially as a pass catching back, should be shoved in with those top guys. But I, I totally I think your point on it makes a bunch of sense, and I'll I'll probably actually adjust my own strategy moving forward.
1: I think as well. Something's going to be interesting to watch is look, I'm still hoping that things turn around and Rodgers can start things out with the Packers, but. If he's there, I think that changes the situation a little bit, but I still feel that I would be on Sean's side of taking the wide receiver the tight end targets that are available at the back end of the first, early, second. But as a player, the the uh, running back in that offense I'm starting to target is A.J. Dillon, based on the part that you mentioned that I think often is going to overlook the amount of work that Jamal Williams got in that Packers offense. I think we're going to see... And those, I know there might be lower value touches, but I think we'll see Dylan get some of those. I think it. He-
3: and the journey's kind of funny since the Packers coach was, of course, Henry's OC who allowed Dion Lewis to outtouch Henry at the time. We've gone full circle now.
1: Yeah, well, these things do sometimes come around. There's a lot of things in the NFL <laughs> that uh, you know people still get jobs long after <laughs> maybe they, they should but it's going to be interesting to see how, how that all plays in here uh, in terms of you mentioned Giovanni Bernard there he was somebody we talked about last week has been one of uh, our potential favorite late round running back targets uh, I'm going to throw it to that question just because it fits in perfect with that but are there any running back targets maybe after let's say let's say the 10th round but 12th round and onwards mainly that you're snapping up uh, this year in drafts?
3: Uh, I will never draft the highest running back in a proven arbitrage machination backfield uh, because I believe like hype is terrible process. And so the fact that Trey Sermon surged right after the Jeff Wilson injury, Jeff Wilson, who, by the way, I had a ton of at the time, um, I've actually now gone to drafting Wayne Gallman, who is reportedly number two on the depth chart, and I think could carve out even a goal line role, for what is essentially free right now, at the very last round of drafts. Again, the 49ers and Shanahan pointed this out. Their back, their third running back led that position last year in snaps. And last year, the 49ers backfield over the two over the last two years actually have led in cumulative fantasy points in those units among the league. So I think there are a ton of points to go around. We know it's going to be run heavy. Perhaps perhaps could be even run heavier if it's Trey Lance under center. And so just getting the cheapest piece, like I said, it is your last round pick. The cheapest piece in that backfield is what I prefer as opposed to drafting Sermon over other guys, because right now he's surged like near J.K. Dobbins, uh, right around DeAndre Swift range, which is far too pricey for me.
2: Goldman's somebody that Blair and I actually have a lot in the FFPC classic leagues that we're in. And with that 28 round format, and you, you go through, you look at the roster construction explorer, you see how you should really play it. I mean, you do need to draft a running back or two in those last three or four picks. And, and when you're in 25, 26, the 28th round, you're starting to discuss some guys where you're not even sure if they're going to play. Do you have some other guys in that range? Because Goldman strikes me as just a home run pick. A, a, someone who could score zero. But when you're talking about someone who could have multiple 30-point games, I mean, I, that's that's a name that jumps out there, which obviously in best ball and not having to pick out that 30 point game ahead of time is even more valuable.
3: I think Damian Williams is interesting, especially assuming Tariq Cohen will be brought along slowly. Uh, That also caps David Montgomery's ceiling because he took advantage of Cohen's absence last year and getting 12 to 14 more routes per game without Cohen from week four on. But now we have Damian Williams as the insurance basically ensuring that Montgomery can't be used in that role, but Damian Williams can. And remember, he proved to be a terrific well right runner. Like that was his specialty with Patrick Mahomes, anyhow, already. And then also, I don't know about FFPC, the deep league. So if you have that ADP on you, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I don't know where we're Mondre Stevenson is going, but it is not being treated as Sonny Michelle's going to get cut. Whereas we are 95% sure Sony Michelle is going to get cut. People still are waiting to be reactive instead of proactive. Whereas even in drafting, let's say Dallas Goddard is like the tight end six or seven. If that is your cup of tea, we need to be doing those things ahead of time because we know their ADP just launches from that point forward the moment it happens.
2: That's a really interesting point, I think. When you're on some of those guys or you know that move is going to happen, do you want some exposure just because you know the future ADP? Or is it something where your own valuation still has to come into play? I was kind of joking about it, I think, three or four years ago, one of the MFL 10 of death leagues. um, There were a couple of guys, Chris Hogan and uh, Marquise uh, Godwin, I think, who uh, when I drafted them in rounds 11 and 12 or in that range, and then by the start of the year they were being drafted in around like fifth, five, and six, it's like, okay, well – you got a great ADP value there, but it turns out where they should have been drafted was like rounds 19 and 20. So you could still <laughs> lose on those players. Um, how do you balance that in terms of building a portfolio? As
3: as they say in the betting world, you can't feed your kids with closing line value, but uh, we yeah. still try to get it anyways. It's the process he screams as his wife leaves him. It's the process. <laughs> uh, so I, I actually still, if I think the situation is fr- friendly for fantasy, I will still attack it. For instance, like Matt Ryan, we talked about stacks earlier. Uh, it wasn't just me, it was a lot of sharp people were already double stacking Matt Ryan without Julio because it's not a volatile situation. It was a condensed target tree the moment Julio was traded, where you take your shots or reading through the tea leaves and then double stacking Julio with blind quarterbacks, knowing that you could still get six rounds of ADP leverage. Uh, and maybe that's the case, I think, for a situation where we know. Assume a player would get better. Like if Julio had landed with the Raiders, we should probably assume that Derek Carr's production would go up, especially because Nelson Aguilar made him a better deep-throwing quarterback. Still not sure how that worked, but with a with a player of that caliber, I would trust that Derek Carr's ADP would rise from QB 26, 27, wherever he's going right now, depending on your format, to perhaps even like QB 19, QB 20. And so I would trust getting value on that range. But Tannehill, it's a... It's a situation with nuance because he was already undervalued. Like the fact he was already top five in fantasy points per drop back the past two years under Arthur Smith, when you include rushing scoring, yet he was going as the QB 15 in every format. Uh, we were already too underweight and incorrectly evaluating Tannehill. And so if it took Julio to bump him up, good on everyone for just going with their lean anyways. It's like they always say, being contrarian isn't just doing something stupid, right? You're not going to draft, double stack, the, you're not going to double stack the Lions offense because you're contrarian, you're different, you're going to win a million dollars. Contrarian is just using your own opinions, and then you look up and you're different from the crowd naturally. And so everyone who treated it like that with Tannehill won out on it. Unfortunately, that wasn't a lot of me, so.
1: I think though with Tannehill as well where you mentioned earlier about the upside the Russian upside of quarterbacks I think Tannehill is one of the Russian upside kind of quarterbacks that has been overlooked and is still back where we were thinking about maybe three four years ago getting that late round quarterback who had that upside and I think well that upside that, that value is probably overnight has just disappeared but prior to <laughs> the Julio news the value is there in terms of uh, as we enter 2021 get ready for the the season here is there any strategic approaches that you're trying to implement that you think maybe uh are able to give you that kind of structural drafting uh advantage now um obviously we talked last week with denny about the the sharpness of players and the amount of content that is available for people to to read is there anything where you think there there still is an edge
3: i there are like denny said a lot of people doing Just great macro work on roster construction. We have an industry helping others too. have come just so far in the past two years alone, let alone the past five years. Mike Leone, JJ Zacharyson, everyone at Rotovis, Jack Miller, those are the ones that come to mind first. And something Miller, I think titled even, and has continued harping on is their RB dead zone. And that's why he suggests, as he says in all his articles, whether it's at Establish the Run, RotoViz, or NBC Sports Edge, that you should have four to five wide receivers by the seventh round, thus avoiding the RB dead zone and lending yourself a higher win rate, both statistically and logically, because you're getting this pack of wide receivers who, for anyone who has looked at wide receiver ranks from 10 through 24, you think you should be higher on someone, and then you realize you can't get higher on someone because the position – is packed this year. Uh, And so I do agree with all of that. Having said that, I just like to urge everyone to remember the format they're in because we can't really abide by the rules when we're trying to be, let's say on Underdog, for instance, one of 155,000 winning a million. We need to separate ourselves. Thus, you may have to jump or go different in roster construction and ADP if everyone else is trying to do the same thing. And the same thing goes for three-man leagues, I play a lot of three-man drafts across sites because I know what butters the bread. I'm not going to make ROI trying to win a million dollars. I'm trying to actually get money back at the end of the year because I draft, you know, it's my job. I draft from March through December. Um, And so I play a lot of three-man leagues. And the way it seems this year is that I know we we stress zero RB, but since we are trying to get these running backs, these great players you are confident in, and the, the RB dead zone this year exists beyond them in the next tier. And also, the wide receiver position is stacked. I have been doing two or three RB builds to start. And then you look up and the wide receiver position is still just that. The wide receiver eight, let's say, um, Michael Thomas in some cases, Amari Cooper in some cases, DJ Moore, Terry McLaurin, the list goes on. Those guys are available as your wide receivers ones. And then you can just rattle off seven or eight in a row and still look up and have a strong top five quarterback as well. Like these builds are absolutely possible in three-man builds right now. And so I've actually been treating it going not RB heavy, but – anchoring running back as in like getting my top two elite players. Cause they are available and then going wide receiver from that point forward. And uh, that's how structurally I've been doing that. Do you have one of the things that seems to
2: jump out a little bit to me this season, we've talked a lot um, on the site about just the, you, you use the roster construction explorers and it, it's, it's so brutally obvious that outside of round two for running backs, that I mean, you're just giving up so many points. Your your win rates, you know, fall through the floor. But this year, as we continue to evolve with with how some of the positions are drafted and some of the top wide receivers, again, I think become more exciting. We went through a little bit of a period there where the top wide receivers, even though there were a couple of seasons that were very good, the top guys overall were maybe not quite as exciting as you know, at the very peak of Julio Jones or when you have a Calvin Johnson or obviously when you have Antonio Brown before all of those things happen. Round two becomes just so dynamic now at wide receiver. Some of those round two running backs have some of the red flags we were discussing earlier on the show. And then round three has the second year running backs. And all we have to do is look at these last five or six, and say, okay, well, some of them really panned out. And then some of them year two was when they all cratered and they went from everybody's drafting them early in Dynasty to where you know, you're know you a Sonny Michelle, you're a On Johnson, you're a Royce Freeman, you have absolutely no value at all, right? And that's part of what plays into the dead zone, is people are drafting these guys early in redraft who have scenarios to jump into the first round next year or to jump into the 15th round next year. But with that being said, some of those guys are pretty exciting. How much... Of that, and when you compare round two running backs versus round three running backs, are you actually a little bit more excited about some of those round three guys because the upside seems even higher?
3: Well, Calm will hear me crying from Ireland if CEH goes down because like, literally if I pull up my exposure for you right now, he's my number one overall player uh, because in zero RB builds, I have, or anchor, hyper fragile, whatever you want to call it, I have been tacking him on as usually the first running back for me off the board because in those middle rounds too, and because last year, recall, he averaged 17 carries, five targets per game in those first six weeks until the corpse of Le'Veon Bell was signed. And then after that, C.H. was injured, of course. They healthy scratch Le'Veon Bell the rest of the way. The fact is, as we know, Bell is now out the door. So I believe he can just go right back into that role. Though I do understand the concern that perhaps and McKinnon has a little bit more of the passing game role than we figure out the gates. But overall, I think they are exciting. There's, there's some room there for Antonio Gibson, let's say, who – Graham Barfield actually pointed out uh, was outsnapped on third down by JD McKissick, 197 to 22, just absurd, especially when we know Gibson's college profile literally as a slot receiver, not a running back to then come and lead the team and carries as a between the tackles runner. Um, he proved what we didn't know he could prove. And so I would think there's just simple regression and that margin being split because it was so wide. Also the fact that, Washington only added to their defense and then got an above-average quarterback. Uh, Last year, Alex Smith led the league in target rate at or behind the line of scrimmage, whereas Fitzpatrick led the league in target rate between 10 to 19 yards via pro football focus. So overall, just the grand scheme of that offense is going to be different. And we know that they will likely be playing with more of a lead with that defense as well, which lends itself to a higher floor naturally for Antonio Gibson. So I I also get fairly excited about him. I think he could be a top seven guy, Um, but Najee Harris is really Those are the guys, RB 13 through 15, where I cut it off because then we get to what I truly believe is the dead zone, the the Chris Carson, the Miles Sanders, even Mike Davis, Chase Edmonds, DeAndre Swift, guys whose role that we think we know more than we do. And it could go very awry from there. And that's why I'm just trying to avoid those situations altogether in in certain builds and look more to, like you said, Sean, just that, that top elite tier and move on from there.
1: That's really interesting. Uh, just before we finish up, John, anything that you want to uh, give a, a plug to or anything got going on over the, the next couple of weeks?
3: Yeah, so we have, I have my best ball tiers out on the site, NBCSportsEdge.com. I'm also creating a schedule uh, article that I have thoughts on because I've been doing a lot of work in week's 15 through 17 scheduling, which I know seems wild, but remember like this year, best ball tournaments, these million dollar ones, that's where it's decided. Cause it's essentially like three individual tournaments, but also remember that we have situations where teams play each other back to back this year, uh, or at least twice in three weeks. It is, going to be the hardest and wildest year of football, especially in fantasy, that we have ever seen. And so I think there are some edges right now that you could have. Just quickly off the top of my head, for example, I usually don't draft Falcon stacks or Bill stacks unless I run it back with someone from that other team, because in week 17, the Falcons play the Bills. And that is most likely to pop, same as the Chiefs and the Bengals and Cowboys and Cardinals. I always stack with each other, even if it's just one player in the last round. So uh, just an observation on that situation I'll have at the site. And other than that, you can just find me at not, Jay Daigle on Twitter and a good football show podcast
1: once again thanks to john for jumping aboard the podcast a lot of fun getting his thoughts make sure you're following him if you're not already on twitter at not you won't regret checking out his great content as well As I mentioned great content Uh, the Scott Fishbowl is coming up to be a lot of content uh, in the next couple of weeks covering it if you want to enter it and you haven't already gained entry we have a way that you can do that we have one lucky uh, spot to give away to a listener of the podcast all you have to do is drop a five-star review in your favorite podcast app and retweet the tweet on my at Overtime Ireland Twitter feed Uh, get yourself entered in for a chance to win we will be announcing the winner of that on one of the shows this upcoming week uh, or sorry next week in fact uh, and we are hoping to be joined by uh, scott fish on one of those shows to announce the winner so we'll see if that there can all fit uh, and work out for us but that is the current plan as we move forward and as always as a loyal podcast listener you can get yourself a 10 percent discount of a one-year road subscription all you have to do is add the code rvradio radio 2021 at checkout or go to rotavis.com forward slash podcast for further information That's going to get us to the end of the second show of the week. Once again, our guest today was John Daigle uh, of NBC Sports Edge. My co-host is Sean Siegel. You can find all his work up on rotovis.com. My name is Colin Kelly. You can follow me on Twitter at Overtime Ireland if you are so inclined. Make sure as well to go and retweet that tweet, even if you don't decide to follow me, uh, to get yourself into that contest. And uh, with all that said and done, we'll be back on Saturday with another edition of the podcast. Three shows coming your way this week.